You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. In today's episode, John is joined by Jacob Hack Misra. Jacob Hack Misra is a senior research investigator at the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. As a member of the American Geophysical Union and the International Astronomical Union, his research focuses on understanding the conditions that allow life to survive on Earth and the possibility of detecting signatures of biology or technology on other planets. He also studies the possible futures of life in the solar system. He received his PhD in meteorology and astrobiology in 2010 and his MS in meteorology in 2007 from Penn State University. He is joined by Thomas Forshee. Thomas Forshee is a space research scientist employed at the American University at NASA. His research interests involve the modeling of exoplanetary atmospheres, climate and circulation using general circulation models with a particular emphasis on clouds. He also employs radiative transfer tools such as the planetary spectrum generator to simulate atmospheric characterization of rocky exoplanets and biosignature detection with future space-based observatories. He is also interested in the climate and forecast simulation of Mars to develop a global forecast system that would help future NASA Mars missions. Remember to subscribe to Event Horizon so you never miss an episode. Jacob Hack Misra and Tomas Fauché, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Gentlemen, you've both been party to re- two recent papers regarding uh, the detection of alien technosignatures far or near. And my question for you to start is, all right, so what are the likelihoods of seeing a close technosignature, such as within the solar system, versus seeing a very distant one out in the galaxy somewhere light years away? Is it more likely that we would see a detection of alien life very far out as opposed to very near, or are the odds about the same? You know, for me, I don't think we can say anything about the odds. I think we have very little searching that's actually been done, and we don't know anything about alien life. We don't know how common it is, how rare it is. We can get into talking about the Fermi paradox. All we can say is we know there's not spaceships flying around the solar system every which way that they're so obvious that we see them. That's pretty much all we can say is you can rule out some of those extreme sci-fi scenarios of like a galactic club in some level, but not more, not much more. So I don't know. We might find technosignatures with James Webb. We might find something on Mars. I don't, I can't, I don't really think we have a likelihood. Yeah, I agree with Jacob. I mean, it's, uh, we don't have data so far, so we need to completely, you know, to stay open on, on the question. And, uh, and same goes for the biosignatures, actually, as you know, Jacob just mentioned, we, we may find, you know, first sign of biosignature on a very distant exoplanet. So maybe we will find some on, on Mars. Uh, so it's, uh, it's very hard to tell right now. In the past, if an alien civilization had visited Earth, and we have to bear in mind that Earth is 4.5 billion years old, and throughout that entire time, somebody could have visited in the very distant past, do we have much of a hope of finding any evidence of their visit? Well, it depends on where they visited and what they did. So if you visited Earth, 
The surface of Earth is very active. Things get resurfaced really fast. And so even if there was some artifact on Earth that some visitors had left, it might be really difficult to find. It might have already gotten bound up in other processes, geologic processes, if that was a long time ago. If it was on the moon, maybe you have a better chance at finding something that's been left there, maybe an artifact, maybe waste, because the, the moon is a more serene environment and, and things are left undisturbed there. So I think it just depends on, on what activities they were up to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there is this interesting paper by Gavid Schmidt and Adam Frank uh, about the Silurian hypothesis. We were like, would it be possible to detect uh, an industrial civilization in the geological record? And so that was a very interesting paper a few, few years ago. And that's not that easy, actually, because geological processes can really resurface a lot of things and um, can be also an, an open question. I think maybe the only thing we may be able to find would be like a very you know, high density of heavy metals and things like that. That could be a clue. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, we on the scale of a hundred of million or billion of years, uh, we can really have everything uh, completely, uh, completely erased. What is in ideal conditions? And let's set aside the idea of space travel, that it would be much harder to go and search some Kyber belt object or something like that for a techno signature versus searching the moon. What is the ideal environment for preservation of an alien artifact within our solar system? Where could we go and say that's the best place to look? Hmm, that's a good question. Tom, if you have any ideas, go for it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one indeed. I mean, I will say a place where we have a lot of data, at least because we are really data-driven. You know, of course, on Earth, we have a lot of satellites, we have a lot of observation. But even like for the moon and Mars, we have many orbiters and instruments. That could be a nice place. And, and, and there, there is no anymore, you know, drastic change on their surface. And so I would say, yeah, it could be a place where you have a combination of a, a lot of instruments, a lot of data, and also something that is not, you know, changing all the time. Like on, on Venus will be extremely challenging, for instance, uh, or Titan, you can change also very quickly. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think I agree with that. Maybe I would add, you could look, if you're looking for free-floating artifacts, maybe some of these stable Lagrange points. So there's stable points in orbits between two bodies where you know, our objects, the debris, asteroids will, will kind of trail along with the planetary body. So that might be where some you know alien probe that's no longer working ends up. Or maybe it's a place to just observe us you know, whatever its mission is, if it's, if it's an alien probe, you know, you can kind of park there with low energy costs. So that could be a place to look. In regards to placing objects that somebody could discover, we've done this. We've, we've stuck gold records on the side of spacecraft and we've sent out at least one powerful signal, you know, from Arecibo to try to get the attention of aliens, although it was half-hearted. Now, if an alien civilization wanted to say, look, we visited here 10 million years ago, is there a natural place where they would put an object just like the hydrogen line where we, we, we speculate, well, maybe they would put a signal here. Is there a natural place in the solar system where an alien civilization would put an artifact intentionally with the intent of it being discovered? So this is like uh, like 2001 Space Odyssey, like where do you hide the monoliths? 
You know, I don't know. That's a great question because then you're getting into alien sociology. Like, what would they think would be a good idea? You know, we can we can speculate what we would do if we were were trying to get that attention. But if if you're talking about some alien civilization that's possibly more advanced than us because they were had interstellar travel capabilities, I mean, it's it's, it's a guessing game as, as far as I'm concerned. Like, I don't know. Like like Toma just mentioned, you know, every place in the solar system has some lifetime at which things get, you know, resurfaced and, and there's environmental processes that, that can weather things and, and make them difficult to, to, to last. So, you know, it's a dynamic environment. If, if you're talking about someone who visited, you know, five billion years ago and you wanted something to last that long, I actually don't know what, what could last that long. I'm sure there's something, but, but I, I would just be guessing, really. Yeah, I would put it probably on the moon because it's super close. I mean, we have been there, we are going to, to be back and there is no really a lot of change on the moon's surface. I mean, you have still some, you know, uh, some craters that are changing, but um, most of the surface remain the same. And uh, so, yeah, I think it would be a, a combination of being easily reach, reachable and, and also uh, not changing too much. So I think the moon may be uh, the best place for that. Now, say we decide as a civilization whether intentionally or just 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 as a byproduct of us exploring the uh, solar system, say we decided to stick a piece of concrete on the moon, big concrete block, rebar concrete, and bury it. How long would it last, and how would an alien civilization find it as a techno signature? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, that's that's a, a little out of my technical expertise, but I mean, I, I think you know, there's. There's a cratering rate of the moon. Now it's slowed down since earlier times, but there's still impacts. So over time, you know, the moon will get hit by things. But I mean, that that might vaporize some of it, depending on how big the con- the, the, the impactor is. You might just send some of the concrete up and, and scatter it, making it harder to to detect. You, you know, it's gonna it's gonna last. You know, maybe on the order of millions of years, but probably not billions of years. Um, so, so things can stick around for a while, but when you're talking astronomical time scales and you get into the billions, things, things inevitably change. That would be the ultimate and tragic if an alien civilization visited us two billion years ago, left an artifact, and it was obliterated by an asteroid, and we never know about it. So <laughs> it drives home the point that the, the universe is very dynamic and that nothing is forever. Now, let me ask you guys this, and I want each of your views on it. Some people will make the case that the UAP phenomenon is compelling and points towards an alien origin for these things. I don't think we're there yet myself, but I wanted to get your viewpoints on that. Is it worth looking into from the perspective of astrobiology to you know try to determine if whatever people are seeing, the Navy, etc., is of alien origin. Well, I'm interested in the you know study of UAP, not necessarily because of that, but I'm, I'm fully cognizant of the fact that a lot of people think that there is a connection between you know what astrobiologists should be caring about and this. And I can't say that there's no connection because they're unknown and we don't know. So I think in that sense, it's worth a few astrobiologists paying attention to what's going on. But you know what? I, what I've made this this discuss, comment in the SETI community before. Like, 
I haven't seen any evidence yet to say that there is a connection between any of the UAP we're discussing now or even any of the historic cases, that there's a connection between that and extraterrestrial activity in any state. Like nothing, the data has not convinced me that there is a positive connection yet. But I can think of a hypothetical case in which there is a connection where you have an alien spacecraft that's headed from Alpha Centauri into the solar system is flying by Pluto. Well, that's a thing that SETI scientists would care about because that's that's a, a spacecraft that's from, from another solar system. Well, let's say that spacecraft lands on the moon. Well, that's something that a lot of SETI scientists would care about now too. There are studies that actually consider this idea of looking for artifacts on the moon and Mars and what, what you would look for. So those things are fine within conventional SETI, but as soon as, if that spacecraft were then to enter Earth's atmosphere and, and it were to be seen by you know radar and video camera, you'd call it a UAP right away. And if, if that's off limits for SETI, then there's a problem because even if that's not what we're seeing now, that's a hypothetical I can come up with where there is a connection. And so in that sense, we have to be paying attention you know, we may discover a lot of other things in the process of studying UAP that have nothing to do with aliens, but there's a hypothetical connection. So we should be able to talk about it so that we don't miss something that we're really interested in. Yeah, I totally agree with Jacob. I mean, there, there should not have any taboo on, on, on that question. And uh, every hypothesis needs to be on the table. And I think it's the best way that we, uh, we are going to approach that. And um, you may have seen that recently NASA has built a sort of task force to to uh, try to answer those questions. And, and, and there is one uh, actually uh, astrobiologist uh, in, in that team, um, David Grispoon. And so it's, uh, it's, very, uh, it's a very good sign. Tomas, I, I have a question specifically for you. Do you find a difference? Now we talk about taboos, as was just mentioned. Do you find a difference between the taboo in the United States versus France? Is, are the, the attitudes different regarding the question of UAP? Ah, that's interesting. So we have this network in France, the Japan, that uh, really, you know, look into uh, all the UAP phenomenon. I, yeah, I'm not sure, actually. I think it's maybe, it's maybe the same. I mean, I've been interested into the question when I, I was still living in France. And yeah, I don't know if Jacob, do you have any idea on, on that subject? I know he had a lot of French people from the aviation side and also some scientists are, are are working uh, in some international team on the question of UAP, but I'm not sure there is a fundamental difference into the way we approach that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's a great question about what the, the cultural differences are. I mean, my understanding is that the, the actual sighting of aerial phenomena that are unexplained by you know, military pilots and commercial pilots is a global phenomenon. But how the, the sort of cultural interpretation of those facts is represented in different in different nations i don't know actually i'm more familiar with the united states what my interest here is is that ultimately what i'm getting at is that okay so we have congress here in the u.s jacob where they're looking into the uap and asking the pentagon questions about actual hard data they seem to have you know i mean they seem to have radar contacts and things that we could look at if they weren't classified. So my question is, is what about France? France operates a nuclear aircraft carrier like group like we do, you know, and what are their observations and would it be helpful? Let me ask you this. Would it be helpful to have a multinational probe 
into what everyone is seeing collectively to try to determine what it is and if there's anything there that's of astrobiological interest. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's. Uh, I think there are some new efforts not to try to really uh, have some coordination on the international uh, scale. But yeah, definitely. I mean, we we really need data and good quality of data, and for that we we need to we need to be able to share them. And uh, so yeah, we we totally in, in favor uh, on, on about that. Yeah. In regards to the stigma, the taboo on the subject, which I'm I'm openly tossing off, <laughs> admittedly. Do either of you have any misgivings or fears within the scientific community as members of it of even talking about the concept of close alien life? You know, I, at first, uh, I was a little bit you know, just cautious about how I wanted to talk about the idea of UAP UFOs in general. And that's when, you know, Ravi Koparapu and I published the Scientific American article. We sat on it about a year before we felt the timing was right and ran it by our colleagues and bosses. And that was about the time when the you know, Navy videos were declassified. And so it seemed like the timing was right to try to start um, talking about this more. I feel like that has been successful. Everyone who has who's been talking about it has helped to reduce the taboo. Um, so when I go to scientific meetings now, um, you know, there, a lot of my colleagues aren't personally interested in UAP still, but they're open to the idea that it is a scientific problem. I think the culture has changed a lot uh, in, in that respect. And, and then also for, for solar system SETI, um, even totally separate from UAP, just I think having a new generation of, of scientists come in, taking the idea of technosignature seriously. We have a whole host of Mars missions and other solar system exploration we have private money coming in to techno signatures. So I think the idea of looking in the solar system is just is more uh, amenable among scientists today, too, just for a lot of cultural reasons. Yeah, absolutely. The mentality are also really evolving. Like if we think about even a biosignature, like, you know, a decade ago or more, uh, it was not really mainstream. No, it's totally is. And then a few years ago, the techno signature research was also not really mainstream. No, it is. So I think, yeah, we, we basically uh, keep, and you know, we have to continue to, to talk about it, to make some uh, really, uh, you know, rigorous research and, and looking for, for data and that eventually, you know, will we, we, we'll change as well. Now, I, I mentioned this because years ago, decades ago, a scientist, an atmospheric scientist named James McDonald looked into this and he felt ultimately that an alien origin for some of the UAP accounts, and it's important to say accounts because that's not very good data, but he felt that the alien hypothesis was the least worst hypothesis. Is, was that premature on McDonald's part? I mean, can you really work? I guess what I'm asking is, can you really work from witness accounts and actually come to a, any kind of solid conclusion? Or do you need real data? And what would we do in regards, especially let's let's take the Galileo project and Dr. Avi Loeb. What would we do to actually get real evidence to where we could make a determination if there are aliens in our solar system with us and for that matter, our, our atmosphere? Right. Yeah. Those, great question. So um, I guess for James McDonald, I really like James McDonald. His, his paper, Science and Default, gives a great model for how to explore UAP for, from a scientist. Um, he does rely heavily on eyewitness accounts, and there is limitations as to what you can do with that. And I think that's just what he had available. And um, yeah, I think he was probably a little premature 
in jumping to the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I think we really just need to collect more data uh, at this time. But, but to your point, yeah, I think, you know, what the Galileo Project is doing is fundamentally the right thing. We can't rely on, de- you know, getting more declassified data. We can't rely on um, uh, any prior ev- prior sightings. The data is all, it's very scant. Uh, like you say, a lot of it relies on eyewitness testimony. So you need new data that's collected in a systematic way, the way you do a scientific experiment. And so, you know, the Galileo Project is, is building a network of, of sensors that are, it's, it's a multi-sensor array that's looking at optical and infrared wavelengths and, and capturing sound and capturing other, uh, you know, properties about the weather and other things about the, the environment, sensing the whole sky across many, many points so that if there is an object, you know, known or unknown that crosses the field of view, you're capturing that and you're identifying it or you're flagging it as something that, that is un, unidentified. Now, if you, if you start to find things you don't identify, well, this is where it is very similar to, to the search for, for life and technosignatures. Even if UAP has nothing to do with aliens and it's just something unknown, it doesn't really matter at that point because you know, if, you, if you find something in the sky that you can't identify, but you've ruled out airplanes and you've ruled out birds and you've ruled out you know, aurora and everything else, it it you, you may, you, maybe you found aliens, but whatever it is, you you have to then dig a lot deeper. You have to ask new questions and, and conduct new experiments and, and analyze the data even more to figure out what you can learn about this. And so, in the same way, if we looked at you know Trappist One E with the James Webb Space Telescope and we saw something and it looks like atmospheric pollution in the atmosphere, well, that'd be great. I'd be super excited. Maybe we found a techno signature, but we were also going to have to then play the long game about like trying to break our hypothesis and are there other ways we can explain that data? Are we really missing something? And so, um, yeah, if the Galileo project finds some anomalies, that's going to be really exciting. But then that's not the end. That's actually the beginning. That tells you like, what else do we need to learn to actually understand what these things are? And if it turns out that it's, it's extraterrestrial, great. I'm the first one to celebrate. But it doesn't end by just saying there's things we can't understand. Like you have to understand them and, and then convince yourself somehow about what it is you're looking at. I think it would be really sad if we looked at an exoplanet and saw an obvious technosignature like CFCs in the atmosphere, but they weren't for terraforming purposes, they were just messing their atmosphere up and destroying their, o- their ozone layer. <laughs> we're like, whoa, the first alien detection is really sad. They're destroying their world. <laughs> Although it could. Although, you know what? You know what? It, it would actually be okay because if they were doing that, the odds of us observing an alien civilization in that instant right before they go extinct is really small. We're probably going to catch the long-lived aliens that are, you know, whatever they've been doing, they're able to do it for a while. So if they've got CFCs in the atmosphere and they're just living there, it means they figured out a way to make it work. And then it's not so bad for us. Maybe we can figure out a way. Yeah, that would be super interesting because that will also mean that life has, you know, followed the same path. And so that we, they are also going to their, their own, you know, uh, yeah, pollution in the atmosphere. And uh, that would be actually very interesting. Well, what, what would be really interesting is if we saw some mega structure like a Dyson sphere or something that, that you know, stretches and, and, and blurs into science fiction that says alien civilizations last indefinitely and therefore our chances of lasting indefinitely are great. So the bigger the technosignature you see, you know, higher up on the Kardashev scale, 
the more interesting it is because it suggests that at least someone survived long enough to do unbelievably advanced things, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the very interesting thing about about techno signature. They can be almost almost anything, and they 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 are likely less ambiguous than the bio signatures. And they can also, yeah, as you said, they can they can remain after the, the end of a of a civilization. Like for bio signature, once you know life is gone on the atmosphere of a of a planet on a surface, the 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 bio signature are, are are going to be gone very quickly. When techno signatures can really remain far after the, the the end of a of a civilization, like technology can can stay there for a while. And so that's always the the very open question right now. Is it you know? Easier to detect first biosignature or technosignature. Um, maybe we think like before going to technology, you need to first start as a, you know, biology, and so maybe there are way more biology uh, biosignature across the universe. But the, the, their signature is probably much more ambiguous, and and, and again, maybe a much uh, more uh, short-lived by comparison to technosignatures. Individual assessments from two scientists, both of you. What do you think the chances are of the object, the mysterious object, Umuamua, to have actually been something of alien origin? Do you think we're in that territory or do you think that it was just a weird rock and we, we should probably not pay too much attention to it and look for future objects? Yeah, for me, no, it's not. Uh, it's absolutely not a, a mothership. There is no way. That was like, you know, having some interstellar object crossing the, the, the solar system was absolutely expected as a natural, you know, uh, phenomenon. The, the the direction where it comes from was also expected, and as many papers have really, you know, demonstrated that uh, there is uh, it's absolutely not an alien spacecraft. So, so yeah, I agree with, with Tomah. I, I I don't think it's an alien spacecraft. Now, my understanding is that the size of Oumuamua was smaller than what was expected for the first interstellar object we're supposed to see. And I think that's really interesting because if we, I think it's it's a totally valid question to ask: Are there interstellar artifacts that are techno signatures? And if we want to look for artifacts in the solar system, you have to understand what the background of other non-technological objects coming in and out of the solar system is. So I think Oumuamua is in the second category. It's probably you know, just, just, you know, a, a rock that came into the solar system, but it didn't seem to match all the theories about what we would expect. And so that we, we need to understand better how interplanetary exchange of objects occurs or, you know, inter, interstellar uh, exchange of matter occurs because the better we have theories for what, you know, what the frequency of a Muamua-like object should be, the better we're going to be able to pick out, you know, technological artifacts if they're there. Now, searching for far techno signatures, you guys recently released a paper on low mass stars and how they might be perhaps targets for alien civilizations that are advanced and spacefaring to go and colonize. Lay that out for me. Sure. So the you know this is the classic Fermi paradox where hypothetically I don't even know if Fermi really asked this question, but the story goes Fermi was asking you know if if life is common out there, whereas where is everybody? You know it wouldn't take very long for one civilization to send out two colon two settlement plan uh, you know two two sets of settlers on to, to go to other star systems and those two send two out and uh, if you do that you could. Uh, settle the whole galaxy really quickly. And Michael Hart wrote kind of the seminal paper about this 
um, where you know he just kind of does a back of the envelope calculation and says, like, look, you could you could settle the whole galaxy in about two million years traveling at ten percent the speed of light. So the fact that we don't see any evidence of aliens visiting the solar system that means that we're, we're probably alone or you know just expansion doesn't happen and you just don't if there's life out there if there's civilizations out there they just don't expand because it wouldn't be hard from that point of view with, with exponential growth and the time scales that we're talking not very hard so why where are they that's the fundamental question so that's where we come in and you know there's lots and lots of explanations to the fermi paradox and so i'll just start up by saying you know these these are these are fun discussions. The, the, the Fermi paradox is supposed to be thought provoking, and, and, and I'm not saying that like this is the only answer. And you know, all the other 200 public published versions are you know like they're, they're, these are all just fun ways to think about what what how can we explain the fact that we don't seem to see any obvious evidence of a galactic empire or something that has been through the solar system. And so in this paper, we we point to some work that uh, Bradley Hansen and his colleagues had done, where they point out that like. Over long, and then, you know, we know we learned this in astronomy. Over long time periods, stars move. It doesn't seem like it when you look at the sky every night, but the stars do move um, over, over, you know, millions, you know, thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. The stars move, and so if you're a patient civilization, which is what Brad Hansen pointed out, you could wait a long time before to migrate to another star. And so right now, it might be a few light years away to the nearest star system. But if we were to wait, you know, several you know, tens of millions of years, that distance would decrease and you would only have to go, you know, not even a full light year to get to the next star because you've just waited for a star to drift closer toward you. And so we just kind of extend that further toward looking at the Fermi paradox and say like, okay, if you can be patient and use patience as a strategy for galactic settlement, well, then you can actually do exactly what Fermi and Michael Hart suggested. You can, you know, get to all, all the, the stars, especially the low mass ones, in a very short time period. But it doesn't require the sort of relativistic space flight of even getting close to the, the light speed. You just kind of hang out and wait to send your expeditions until the stars get close. And so if you do that, you can kind of patiently explore the whole galaxy and still get to you know all the stars. And so if, if, you're, if they're all going to low mass stars, well, that would explain why we haven't seen them. We're a yellow dwarf, a yellow G dwarf star. And, and if, if they're all going to red dwarf stars, that would explain why uh, we don't see them coming into the solar system. The sun is uninteresting to alien civilizations looking for longevity in their star. Stellar encounters as a method of colonizing the galaxy. So you wait around and red dwarf passes. So you put a probe there or a civilization there or whatever, you know, an off branch. And you do that. Now, over the course of the sun's history, the 4.5 billion year history, how many stars has it encountered roughly close by within, say, three light years? That's a good question. Uh, do you know, Jacob? I know, I mean, that definitely has several have, you know, uh, passed, passed nearby, uh, but I have no idea in, in, in about the number, actually. Yeah, I would have to calculate that. I mean, we have a formula in the paper to calculate exactly what you're asking, but I just don't remember the, the relationship because it definitely depends on that distance. Are you able to travel out three light years or 10 or, or however many 
And like, yeah, the number of close encounters you get varies as a function of that, that distance. So I'll refer you to the equation in the paper. <laughs> the number is probably enormous though, right? Yes. I mean, can we say that much? Over the lifetime of the of the sun, um, yeah, yeah, there's there's def definitely numerous, especially if you're going out beyond one light year, then then there's going to be you know d dozens to hundreds, if not thousands, or more of opportunities. Yeah, and the sun has been formed in the same, you know, probably the same nebula and the surrounding stars. And so at that time, you know, the the proximity may have, may have been also uh, much uh, much higher. And um, so yeah, what what, what we already uh, have tried to do with this paper is a sort of uh, if I can do an analogy with quantum physics, it's a, like an optimization of the mean free path, basically, to say, okay, if you know, we have to really wait when it's it's perfectly optimized to to, to make that travel, because it's uh, it's probably you know journey through space are not uh, are not trivial, and so we we can tend to think that yeah, um, uh, extraterrestrial civilization will would like to optimize that. So does it seem weird? Another another question to both of you. Does it seem weird that we see a great silence? I mean, do you agree with the notion that we really shouldn't? We should see them everywhere and we should see them perhaps here. Does the great silence bother you in that respect that there really doesn't seem to be any prohibition against aliens? Uh, we're an example. We're someone else's alien civilization. Does it seem weird that we see the great silence and that aliens aren't obvious? I don't know. And um, do, do they want to communicate? That's also the the thing. I mean, maybe they just want to stay hidden. Uh, you know, that's uh, so. Is that question um, that I'm 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 wondering? Like, uh, you, I think we don't know even ourselves. You know, if we you know make our position obvious, are we going to 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 have a civilization that has more you know like a like predatory you know um, way, and that would be really bad for us. And I mean, maybe every single civilization out there think the same. You always have a bigger fish, and so maybe the the wise things to do is not to give up your position, or uh, so at least on, on, on a passive way, really trying to to mitigate anything we uh, we, we release. And, uh, and then if one of them want to communicate, it would likely be something like the intended specifically in, a, in you know in a specific direction uh this is my opinion yeah i mean i think you know i guess a couple thoughts you know one is um when i think of our idea you know i, I like this solution to the fermi paradox as a way of kind of dealing with with that that great silence at least the, the idea of why are we not obviously visited in, in a way that that you know we, we would be very convinced without having to do all the all this extra work um, why does it seem like we're not part of this galactic empire? And so if 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 the civilizations that really last for astronomical time periods are engaged in sort of the slow methodical exploration settlement of the galaxy, it, it, it sort of makes me think of like, you know, our life on Earth started, we don't know exactly where, but maybe in hydrothermal vents, maybe in, you know, swampy anaerobic areas, something like that. Are G dwarfs like, you know, the, the, the swamp and we're crawling out of the swamp and then life kind of moves on to other star systems. And, you know, we, we're not really interested, uh, you know, in, in going to hydrothermal vents to build our civilizations. And so maybe, you know, G dwarf systems are great for getting life started, just like hydrothermal vents may be great for getting life started. But then, you know, then it moves on and, and you you don't need to hang out in the hydrothermal vent. And so, yeah, maybe that that's an exciting answer to the great silence is that it's not silence. They're just, we just happen to be in, in sort of the hydrothermal vent of, of the galaxy. This is just where things get going and then and it moves on later. 
But I'll also say that I don't think we've looked enough yet. I think we can only rule out very specific versions of the Galactic Club hypothesis. There's, there's not loud omnidirectional radio beacons going on at all times of the day everywhere. Like we, that's all we can rule out. Even Breakthrough Listen can only listen to each star for a couple seconds at a time until you might have missed an important transmission that's coming. So I think with, with radio and with other types of type to signatures, we, we're just barely scratching the surface. So I don't think we can actually rule out very much at all. And so um, with our paper, what I'm hoping is that, uh, you know, I'm interested in, in from a biosignature and just planetary habitability point of view also in just the discovery and characterization of these low mass planets, you know, planets, Earth-sized planets around low mass red dwarf stars. So wouldn't it be great if we're studying these planets and it just so happens that that's the best place to look for technosignatures, not because they're the best place for life to evolve, but it's the best place for life to move once it's evolved. That would be really exciting. So I hope it's true. I don't know what the likelihood is, but it's, it certainly would be a fun solution. The question of us, all right, we are a civilization. And as I said, we are somebody else's alien civilization. So how easily are we detected? Because that might shed light on just how hard it is for alien civilizations to discover each other. So if you're an alien civilization 10 light years away and you look at the star system and you're, you know, you say to yourself, well, G-type stars tend to spawn life, perhaps. And you look here, what would you see? Would Are we detectable as an alien civilization to others? Well, yeah, there, there are several ways, right? I mean, we broadcast radio uh, emission for like uh, 100, 100 years or so. Um, but also like simply doing that, uh, as what Jacob and I do for, for exoplanets is just looking at the, the spectrum of Earth and, and the sign that into uh, Earth atmosphere. And when, you know, we would imagine for them because we are orbiting a G star, we are not going to really do transmission spectroscopy, which is not really optimized for a planet orbiting such kind of star. But instead, we may be going to think about direct imaging. And so that may not really um, uh, see Earth as a pale blue dot orbiting the sun and then making an analysis of the of the color of the light that is reflected by the Earth atmosphere. And from that, we will definitely pick up things like ozone, oxygen, methane, and also technosignatures, uh, as, as we have said, like CFCs and things like that. And so, yeah, if we if we are like 10 parsecs away when we are looking back to Earth with a future direct imaging mission like uh, IRUV or LUVEX, depending on how you, you would call it, but um, that the NASA 2020 uh, Decadal Survey has uh, basically um, recommended for uh, around 2040, then we will definitely have the capability to observe that. So, so yeah. Off the wall question. There is an elephant in the room. The closest star system to us, obviously, is Alpha Centauri, and which includes Proxima Centauri, which is a low mass red dwarf orbiting two sun-like stars. <laughs> and is this a good place to look? Or statistically speaking, is it a bad place to look because it's simply too close? Because if we had an alien civilization right next door, that would imply perhaps that there are alien civilizations everywhere and we should see that everywhere. So is that the place to start that close? You know, it's a fine enough place to look. Like, given the hypothesis we're proposing in this paper, if we're saying M dwarf stars are good places for civilizations to migrate, then sure. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's worth looking. 
I think Proxima Centauri B, uh, from what I know, is probably not going to be the most habitable planet compared to some of the other cases. Maybe TRAPPIST-1E is a better case. I mean, again, we should study all of these planets because we can be surprised. We, all we can do is guess right now with our models what they're probably going to be like. Of course, if you're really close into the star, it's probably going to be too hot. If you're really far away, it might be hard to get an atmosphere that's not frozen. But we're just barely starting to study extrasolar planet, planetary systems and, and just scratching the surface of getting data from their atmospheres. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Proxima Centauri B is not my favorite target, but it's close by. We should study it. Maybe we'll get surprised. That would be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with, with Jacob. I mean, there, of course, there is this project, the Starshot, you know, initiative that will possibly be able to, to, to send some probe there. So that would be really interesting. But um, yeah, I, I'm not super optimistic about Proxima Centauri B because like the, the star Proxima Centauri is uh, very active. You have a lot, a lot of flares, extremely powerful, and there is absolutely no way with anything we know about planetary atmospheres that any atmosphere can survive uh, around that kind of star. And even if you consider the the strongest, unrealistic possible um, fluxes from the interior of the planet that would be able to replenish the atmosphere, uh, it's, it will not be enough. So if there is an atmosphere on that planet, that means that really all our atmospheric models are wrong. <laughs> Now, when we look for technosignatures, we tend to look for what we know, you know, things that our civilization produces, such as radio signals. But is it perhaps more likely that we will stumble into the discovery by finding something incomprehensible that we don't understand, that appears technological, that we don't do, that we don't recognize as either natural or something that we as humans do, but something in the far future that we might do? Do you think that a serendipitous discovery of alien life is possible that will just completely surprise us and take us off guard? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, one of the go ahead. So, yeah, well, one of the big things I really um, at work is like we 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 may have already observed life is of like biosignature or technosignature, but we were not able to recognize it as such because if it's something really different from what we expect, if we don't have any comparison point, we may completely miss it. And so we may already have observed a lot of time life around the universe and just not have identified that as life. Yeah, I, I fully I fully agree with that. I mean, you know, it's possible that, uh, you know, Breakthrough Listen has already recorded a message, you know, from extraterrestrials that was beamed toward us and we just didn't know how to analyze it, right? And it's sitting on a hard drive somewhere or um, another thing we think about is maybe it'll be maybe the the first anomalous sign that's associated with alien activity is someone who's not doing astrobiology at all and they just find you know this this signal um in their data set where they're just doing something totally decoupled from from astrobiology um so there's lots of examples in science of, of things like that so totally possible Exactly, specifically on exoplanets, right? The first exoplanet has been discovered in 1991 by a scientist looking at pulsars. And so it was really not, you know, anyone searching for, for exoplanet, but uh, that, that was the first discovery of uh, any world outside the solar system. Wow signals and transients. In other words, we don't see sustained alien signals. We just see things like the wow signal where we're left wondering and scratching our heads as to what exactly it was. Do we have much of a chance of detecting alien life unequivocally just simply by picking up weird transients that look technological 
and we can't explain. In other words, can there be a self-contained, non-repeating SETI signal that we could say for sure this is proof of alien life, but we only saw it once? You know, that's difficult. Transients are hard because in many cases, you know, with science, you like to be able to have things that repeat. But there are things that we study in science that don't repeat. Um, there are, are fast uh, gamma rebursts or fast radio bursts. Um, and, and there are uh, supernovae and other things in astronomy alone. So, so, of course, you know, something like the wow signal just has... Too, it's too ambiguous to to be able to say for sure what what it is that is not some unexplained radio frequency interference. But you know, if, if you were to get some hypothetical transient signal and it had you know really high information content, it had all the prime numbers, and you just received it once, I mean, that would be a really good candidate. So I, I think it just depends on the the character of the signal. Yeah, every measurement in any field of science has always, you know, an uncertainty uh, associated to it. And as long as we are good enough, you know, to to estimate correctly the confidence level of what we 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 have observed, then I think we will be good. Um, but that's the that's the challenge is to make the the correct assessments of the confidence level of the signal we we detect. Now, I want to point out here for anybody interested in the two recent papers, there's links in the description below to both of them. Here's what worries me. Okay, so we look for close alien artifacts. We look for objects in the solar system or the atmosphere, close aliens. Does that immediately mean that the zoo hypothesis is the correct solution to the Fermi paradox? Because whenever you have a close alien civilization that's more advanced than you are, it's in control. <laughs> so you're saying if we find artifacts, then, then that means we're, we're the zoo animals. Yeah, because by virtue of find well, if you found a dead artifact, you know, a real artifact of a civilization that was here billions of years ago, but no longer is, you're still left wondering about the spooky question of where did it go? Where are they now? But if you found active artifacts, that basically means we're curated, right, by virtue of their superior technology. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, right. So, so in astronomy, things that that are short lived don't stick around usually to be observed for any length of time. So if we're seeing active probes in the solar system, then whoever's on the other end of that has probably been around a lot longer than, than us. So like, yeah, you, how, how you interpret that, you know, that's a, an exercise in science fiction, but, but certainly we're, we're not doing that. We're, we're just barely thinking about interstellar probes. So if we find that we've got interstellar probes here from someone far away, they're definitely more advanced than us. And like, yeah, what does that mean is a big question. Yeah, I don't, I have not really anything, you know, to, to add to that. It's, yeah, it's very difficult. Like they can indeed have left, you know, beacon, but, and not have, you know, uh, and just have left. I mean, you know, not very interesting to us as well. We, we, it's very hard when we start to think about the psychology and how they will, they will uh, think by comparison to us. It, it's, uh, it's really uh, a lot into the, yeah, the science fiction and the metaphysics for me, yeah. You know, I guess one thing I would add is um, we we still don't know what they're interested in. Like, you know, there might be probes in the solar system because you want to study G-dwarf stars because that's where life starts and their scientists wanted to study habitable planets. Um, maybe they're, they're mining bots and they came to mine the asteroids and they don't care about squishy life on Earth. 
um, we're, we're just something that happens to be in the neighborhood. So like, you know, it's totally possible that the, the, the life, you know, is, is, is common in the galaxy. It's spread across all the low mass stars and they don't care about us. We're, we're like ants or, or like bacteria or something. We just exist and they just ignore us. We're, we're of no interest. So th that's totally possible. Yeah, and if there is in, indeed a galactic club, maybe there is a sort of convention or don't go to a, a stellar system where you life is already there. We don't know. Now, to evoke the aforementioned Adam Frank and also Jason Wright, for that matter, prior technological civilizations on Earth, could that possibility that we can't rule that out, that there may have been someone here before us that were Earth life as well, since we can't rule that out, does that make it impossible to actually determine if a close alien artifact is actually alien or if it's originally from Earth. In other words, we find some object or make contact with something that's close by within the solar system with us. Given that you can make genetics look like anything you want, you can customize them as far as a future technology goes, or you can um, change isotopes and metals and make it whatever makeup you want. Is it possible that we could be in a position of finding an alien artifact and never being able to prove, say it's a frozen body from Roswell, and never being able to prove that it's actually a separate abiogenesis from another exoplanet as opposed to Earth life that's simply obscured, hidden, and changed? You know, I like the way you asked that question because it actually highlights an important part of how science works. In science, you really don't prove anything. And, and as much as, you know, some people get upset about that, like you don't really prove things, which you do actually a lot in science is you disprove things or you falsify things. You, you come up with a hypothesis and then you try to break it. And if you break it, then you learn something in the process and you come up with a better idea and then you try to break that idea. And, and so in, in that sense, um, whether we're talking about artifacts in the solar system or UFOs, whatever they are, or te technology in the exoplanet atmosphere. Um, what, what we're doing in all of those cases is we're always going to be playing this game of like, yeah, we, you think it's technology, but what else could it really be? What else could it really be? And so, you know, especially since concluding that it's a techno signature is, the, is sort of the most, you know, uh, it's the most far-fetched explanation or it's the most unlikely given a lot of the context we have you're going to spend a lot of time trying to break that hypothesis and show that it's it's not true. So what you're going to end up with, if it really is a techno signature, you're just going to have time after time after time, you try to explain the data in another way. You're like, oh, well, it's not a techno signature because of this. And then you do that investigation and realize that it, it falls short. And so you're kind of always left with the tentative conclusion that like, given all the science we've done, this is what we know. Um, so, yeah, you'll never really prove it, but you might have really convincing evidence that there's no other other explanation. Yeah, what, what we do is a really a search for anomalies. It's a, it's a word, it's really a key word here that Jacob also has said earlier. Uh, yeah, we and of course, the, 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 the more the anomalies will be very different, very far from what we expected and what, what we know, it will be just more obvious to us. But maybe you will have some anomalies that are, are a bit ambiguous. But overall, for technosignatures, for biosignatures, for UAP, all we are looking for is, is anomalies. And, and, and indeed, as Jacob said, then we, we put some hypotheses to try to explain them. Now, my last question for you guys is really off the wall, <laughs> but I'll ask it anyway. Now, your countryman, Thomas, uh, Jacques Vallée, has floated that maybe, along with J. Allen Heideck, that maybe 
the UAP phenomenon might be weirder than aliens and that it is perhaps based on the accounts, again, not very good evidence, but based on the accounts that it might be even weirder than aliens, unknown science, something dealing with dimensions or something like that. Do you think that sort of reasoning is has any legs at all or should we stick solidly within known science as a philosophy and in looking into this as opposed to asking questions about maybe there's unknown physics here that these things uh, might be taking advantage of? Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds very science fiction to me, but again, we should not have any taboo. And so I would say, why not? It has to to to, to not uh it has to be on the table, but uh, of course, again, we we have after to 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 rank what seems to be you know the the, the easiest uh, possibility. I don't know if the the Dokam razor it's something uh, we want to bring here, but 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 yeah, I, I don't I don't think we need to exclude anything. Yeah, you know, I I think we should we should certainly not be afraid to entertain any hypothesis. When I hear you know explanations for you know UFOs invoking, you know, that there's something interdimensional going on. It's a little hand wavy. And, you know, maybe that's just shorthand for something crazy that we can't explain. Um, and then th that's fine. One thing I noticed when I started first getting interested in, you know, the UFO phenomenon and what's really going on here, there seems to be multiple things that get grouped under UFO, under the, the, the heading. And there's a category of, of of observations that are things that pilots have seen that that aviation associations are now interested in, and that seems to be what um, you know the, the military is studying and what the Galileo project is focusing on. Some of these other accounts seem to have more to do with out of body experiences, or, or they have like abduction components to them, or or some other sort of you know hallucinatory component that to me is. Also, a really interesting question. It, it may have more to do with, uh, you know, understanding psychology and sociology and, and some other disciplines. I think that's a separate topic. And I think sometimes the two things get conflated. And so, like, is there something else to that? What are out-of-body experiences? I think that's a great scientific question. But I think that's actually pretty different than what are the things that fighter pilots are seeing that are also showing up on radar that we can't observe. So, there, so I think we just have to be careful to, to not conflate hypotheses, and le at least until there's a reason to decide that there is a relationship with them. And so I think with, with, with UFOs and, and other technosignature discussions, even in, in, in among non-scientists, you can sometimes con conflate hypotheses where there's not necessarily an obvious link yet. I would dearly love it if we got a radio signal that we could actually decode from an alien civilization. And the question they asked us is, what do you guys think the UFOs are? <laughs> Unidentified. <laughs> so to end this, what, what are the chances? What do you guys think? Do you think within our lifetime, we will actually be able to say that alien life probably exists? Or do you think it'll still be an open question 500 years from now? All I can tell you is I hope we have an answer by the time I'm old, but I don't know what the likelihood is. Yeah. But if, if we don't look, the, the likelihood is zero. Yeah, exactly. Same for me. I, I hope, uh, yeah, I hope I will, I will see that. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm 35 years old, so I think we still have time, but uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, either from the solar system or beyond. Uh, yeah. I'm hopeful that within my lifetime, now I'm, I'm 47, but within my lifetime that 
Well, we may not see a SETI signal or anything like that, but maybe we will correct the chemical process of abiogenesis. And from that, we could say this is either easy or it's hard, and we could just do it from that perspective. And that the the alien life question will simply be answered by this process is a lot easier than we thought, so life must be everywhere. So that's my hope. Yeah, even if we have really, you know, we have searched very hard for a super long time, and we still have not found anything that would be interesting as well. I mean, that the universe is very, very, very vast. So maybe even you know, a few decades from now, we will not have searched enough. But nevertheless, we will have been through a lot of uh, different uh, instrument techniques and approach, and uh, we will be able to rule out some of the uh, hypotheses and some of the cases, and it would be uh, very interesting. All right, gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. And again, as I mentioned, the links to the recent papers is in the description below. And I hope uh, sometime we'll check in again when you guys release another paper. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Thank you very much. Event Horizon and my channel are now available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube memberships. Early ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and sleep-focused content. Sign up now by clicking the links below to your platform of choice. What a really great interview. Hey, Aaron, have you ever uh, you ever wondered if alternate universes exist? Um, no, not really. You can't ever prove it. Um, does it even matter anyway? Yeah, probably not, I know, but I just can't shake the feeling that there might be more to this. Like, I might be in the wrong reality, or the right one. Well, you could have fooled me. Anyway, um, have you sent my check out yet? Wait a minute. It was an alternate reality. The possum has gained control over the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Yes, John. And it seems one of my iterations actually gets paid. Yeah, none of mine do.